Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Barbara Rez is a 40-year veteran of the construction and real estate development industries. As the former executive vice president of the Trump Organization, she is known to the world as the woman who built Trump Tower. Since her time with the Trump Organization, she has become an outspoken advocate for women in the construction industry, speaking extensively to women's and industry groups about her experiences and her advice for dealing with sexual harassment on the job and similar issues. She's written extensively as well, including her 2020 book, Tower of Lies, all about her experiences within the Trump Organization. Barbara, welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, Barbara, let's start by talking a little bit about how you got into construction and to the field to begin with. Can you tell us, did you always want to study construction? Can you tell us a little bit about your story? <laughs> Not really. You know, I started out in college as pre-law, actually. I wanted to get into politics believe it or not. But, you know, when you're 18, you know, you change day to day. And I went into computer science, which I should have stayed in because I'd be a gazillionaire now. But I eventually found my way into engineering. And I took electrical engineering because I liked the part of physics that covered electrical. So I went to school and I got a degree in electrical engineering. Now, for somebody like you, young like you, or anyone really, to hear me say this is going to be a little, what? There were no jobs for engineers when I graduated. No jobs. It was the very first time in like 123 years that my school did not have on-site interviews. Very first time. So it was a scramble. People were going to work for supermarkets, insurance companies. And the summer before I graduated, the year before, my sister who worked in construction got me a job with an electrical contractor. And I did some drafting work. And I had studied, you know, you get some choices, very few choices back when I was going to school, maybe 10 credits. And I took the credits that had to do with construction. So I had a little bit of a feeling for it. And I worked all summer. And then when I graduated, they took me back. So that's how I got into construction. I went into an electrical contracting firm and I started there. Okay. And so when you were actually in school, were you one of the few women? Because this was like what, I don't know what what year this was, but were there very few women at that time? Oh, yeah. The year I graduated, uh, less than 1% of the graduates, period, were women in in the country. I mean, you know, in engineering, less than 1%. There were two other women in my school. Okay, wow, yeah. And would you say that that was the, like, if you're looking at your career from the time you were in schools and then getting started in the field, I mean, did you find your greatest challenges to be during school or afterwards? Oh, no, no. You know, it's interesting in school. I went to school and that's in New York. Yeah, some teachers gave me crap. No question about it. I had one teacher walked into a classroom after he had me in his other classroom. I had them have repeats of the same class. And he goes, thank 
God, there's no girls in here, you know? And I had a lot of that to deal with. Yeah. I remember they used to post the grades. Now everything so hush, hush. But, and I got a C in a very difficult course. And I was coming around the corner and the couple of boys were looking at the posted grades on the door of the classroom there. Oh, she must have slept with him. <laughs> I mean, the guy was like, he was 60 years old, which might have been 100 when you're 18. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, I did that, right? Oh, but for the God. most part, I was cute and the boys liked me. So it was just, you know, they were basically supportive, I would say. Most of the teachers were, were fine. The lab, um, the lab attendants were all local from the neighborhood and they were all uh, black guys and they loved me. And, you know, they used to call me the beautiful Bella because there was a representative <laughs> named Bella Abzuk who was very, very famous, who, who served the area where they lived and very, very outspoken. I know she was a big feminist and I got a kick out of that. So no, the worst stuff that happened, happened when I got to work. Okay. So how was your first job? Tell us about that. I worked for an electrical contractor. I had done some drafting over the summer and they put me in the estimating department and it was horrible. I wasn't doing anything that I knew that I was good at. And my desk was in front of the office of the main estimator, the chief estimator. So people that were going to visit him would hand me things, copy this, you know, like here, girl, you know, that kind of thing. I didn't like it. And you know, they were giving me a hard time. They were giving me a hard time. The the people there, the two people that had most influence on me were not crazy about the fact that I was a woman and I was there. They were ethnic, which, you know, unfortunately sometimes is, leads people a little bit in a, a direction. I'm not saying that every ethnic person doesn't like women engineers, but these did. And I ended up, well, you know, they put me in this computer thing. I forgot about that. And I was working on that, which was just a matter of carrying cards to a place where they had a computer that you could load your card. Nobody had a computer. This was way before computers. It was, you know, only the IBM computers. And yeah, that wasn't really doing much for me. But one thing that guy did, the guy that was my boss on that, he told me to take the PE test, the professional engineers test, which I didn't want to take because I didn't think I was ready. And he said, just take it, just take it. And I listened to him and I passed it, which was good. I left that job. I was very unhappy. Someone gave me a talking to one day. It was right before Christmas. And I said, okay, goodbye. And I left that job. And you know, there was a man there. He was uh, called the general superintendent, wonderful guy who really liked me and appreciated me and respected me and didn't, you know, ogle me. And he hooked me up with another electrical contractor, which was a very, very big one. And I went to work there. And real quick, I don't want to waste the whole interview on this, but I worked there. I started out as an estimator because that's what I had been at the other company. And then they gave me a little project to run as a project manager. And there was a guy there, and I'll never forget this guy. He was an old Navy CB, and he was the assistant chief estimator. And we would be working on a project. You know, estimating is like crunch, 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 and then you got nothing to do for a couple of days, you know, until the next job comes along. And we would have these sessions where all the people, there were five of us, maybe four of us, estimating young people. I was the only engineer. I was the only college graduate. And he'd just talk about the old time. And all of a sudden, he'd start on me. And he'd start picking on me. Just, you know, what's the matter with you? Don't you want to be a woman? And, you know, it's hard for me to even say this because I can't believe it happened. But that went on. And, you know, I had just gotten married, which was 
probably not the best choice for me at the time. And I had no one to talk to. There were no women in the office except for, you know, a secretary's assistants. And none of my friends pursued it. My husband was not really encouraging me to seek women friends. And I really got depressed. I actually was not even caring for myself. I sometimes didn't even comb my hair when I went to work. Anyway, you know, somehow I got through that and they wanted to help me. And there was a big project in Moscow that we were estimating. And, you know, we'd go out and entertain the Russians and talk about them. Oh, God, what lectures. But that's fine. They said, we want you, two other companies and your company to come to Russia and we'll all go through the project and the budgets and everything. And so I'm going to go to Russia. I have been to Europe, you know, but this was amazing. They decided, no, she can't go. No women. No, we're not going to send a woman. So that was it. That was my trip to Russia. And then, yeah, they probably felt bad about it. They threw me a crumb. They gave me a job that I was working on as a project manager, a little tiny bank job. And I did very well on that. I kind of worked beautifully with the form. And after that, there was a very big project that we had in the office. It was called City Course Center. And it's right there on 53rd and Lexington in Manhattan. And the project manager there, knew me very well, as did the foreman, who's the, the man, and always a man, in charge of all the workers, also always men. And uh, he liked me a lot, too. And they wanted me out in the field. They wanted me in the field office where there were maybe six or seven other people working on things, whatever they wanted me to do. Oh, God, I, I wanted to go, right? And it was all set. And this guy who was the superintendent in charge of all the jobs that we had, real big shot, said, no, no girls on my jobs. No. And that was the end of that. What what year was this about? That was 19, I'm going to say 75. Yeah. We're dealing with so many like microaggressions now and institutionalized sexism. And it's just so hard to imagine that blatant no girls. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there were no laws. I mean, you know, sexual harassment, some more discrimination were established by great Supreme Court cases that didn't happen until the 80s, I think. So that was it. So I quit. And I knew somebody that was he was a big shot in a contracting outfit. And he asked me if I'd take a part-time job working on a project that they had, doing estimates, uh, you know, because actually the electrician I worked for was the electrician on this job. And they had two years backup and they wanted on change orders and they wanted to clear it and everything. So I took the job, you know, I thought, oh, maybe it's not fair because I worked for them. I know all their labor rates. They were thrilled because somebody was going to look at their change orders and pay them. So it turned out that it was supposed to be a temporary job. And I worked there for a while. And then, you know, the time was going to be over. It wasn't over, but I left and I went to work for Con Edison, a utility in New York City. (laughs) And I lasted there, you know. We could talk for 10 hours. I lasted there six weeks. I couldn't stand it. There was nothing to do. I mean, it was, I was bored. And I called the guy and I said, can I come back? And he says, sure, I can't guarantee you anything. But I went back and he said, okay, you're done with all the electrical changes. I want you to start on the plumbing and the HVC. I said, what the hell do I know about that? I don't know. He says, don't worry. They want to get paid. They will show you 
what they did and walk you through the plans and you will learn. And I did. I learned every trade. And came, we got a job in New York. Uh, it was called the Commodore Hotel, turned into the Grand Hyatt Hotel. Donald Trump was the developer. And they put me there. They moved me there. And then forget it. I went through that. I did everything. I was a draftsman. I was an estimator. I did all the requisitions. I checked the working place. I did everything there. And I mean, how did you come to lead that job going from because they put you on it, but you weren't, were you already the project manager at the uh, trust no. organization? No, no, no. I started at, I was an assistant on the City Core Center and I had learned all these different trades yeah. and I was good. I mean, they knew I was good. You give me something to do. I did it, you know? So he moved me into his, sort of like a mentor almost into the Hyatt and I, got a lot of different opportunities there, a lot of positions. I was uh, assistant project manager, and then they made me mechanical superintendent, which is unheard of. And that's a very tough job. So you got to take all these electrical, the plumbing, the HVC, the ductwork, make sure that it fits in the spaces allocated. And to do that, sometimes you have to make things wider, flatten ducts, move pipes around, and nobody wants to do this. And you sit in a room with five guys, draftsmen for all the mechanical trades, and you look at a plan and you make them move everything around so bits. It was a tough job. And one of the first things that happened was a tin knocker had made some uh, black iron duct, which is very expensive. That's exhaust duct for the kitchen. It was in the way of everything. It was in the way of pull boxes. It was in the way of heating lines. And I said, you got to move this. And I didn't even know it had already been made. And he said, well, I'm not moving it. Big, big guy, six foot four. And I said, yeah, you're going to move it because it's made. He said, what? It's made? Yeah. I said, well, you know what? Get rid of it. And I insisted on it. So his boss calls, his boss calls my boss, the big boss and, you know, the VP of the company. And he says, she's no good. Get rid of her. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's making me throw out black iron duct. (laughs) Well, you couldn't, I mean, that. Put me on the map to have the balls, excuse the expression, to stand up against this man. And these five brawny guys who were all drafting there wanted their space in the ceiling. I wouldn't drop a ceiling. I wouldn't move a light fixture. I wouldn't, unless it was, you know, not going to change the architecture or it was absolutely necessary. And I did a very good job with that. And so (laughs) we were doing, we were finishing the hotel. It was like maybe six months away or so. And the, the superintendent, every main area has his own superintendent superintendent in charge of all the workers and then the boss superintendent over everyone else the guy that was doing the ballrooms and the kitchens and the meeting rooms had been an accident and he was limping and his lawyer said look you can't work you can't work if you're gonna so the guy quit just like that quit and you know I had been going in the morning every Friday the big boss would come and he would walk with the superintendent project manager on the job and look at how things are going. And somehow I wormed my way into that. Like I wormed my way into the project meetings. I was not, you know, I was not, there were many people higher than me on the totem pole. So this one day after we walked the job, we went to breakfast and he said, you know, Howie, the guy is quitting and we need a new super. I said, yeah. And he says, want to do it? I said, want to do it? What the hell do I know about being a superintendent? I said, do you think I can do it? And he says, and I won't use the word, do you think I would have and asked you if I didn't think you could do it. So I did it. I became a superintendent. And while I was work, oh, and you know, I'm going to go backtrack for a minute and tell you about the sexual harassment. It was horrible. 
things people said, drawings they wrote on the wall. I would walk by and all of a sudden someone would have to go to the bathroom on a column, you know, stuff like that. And this one guy, the plumbing foreman, assistant foreman, it was a big shot in the plumbing and important to the job. He was really giving me a hard time asking me out and stuff like that. And I kept telling him, look, I'm married. <laughs> what, what, what is this about? And finally, I went to my boss. I said, I can't have this. And I never complained before. And by the way, there was nothing to complain about because sexual harassment didn't really exist at that time. So they went to the head of the plumber and they said, yeah, we've got to get rid of this guy. And the head of the plumber said, He's one of my best men. You know, we're finishing the job. What do you think I can replace him just like that? Bottom line, nothing, not even an apology. They stayed there and he left me alone. He never asked me out again. And I'm sure all the men, but no apology, nothing. Today, they would have fired him so fast. Oh, so fast. That's good. But anyway. Barbara, I want to understand, like, how did you get that courage? Because you went from, like, being depressed because of all the harassment and just, you know, not even combing your hair because you couldn't, it was so hard to, to deal with your day. So how did you I go from that to like yeah. telling, standing up to the guy and saying, no, remove this? Like, how did you change? Where did that change come from? It didn't, it wasn't a change. It was always in me, but you know, it's just, there was no opportunity for it to come out. And this man that abused me at the electrical contracting company, he got under my skin and, you know, I couldn't tell anyone. And this goes true for the hire too with the harassment. I couldn't tell my husband. It would have killed somebody. There was no one to talk to. But I had it inside me. I am a pusher. I am a doer. And I'm fearless. And that came through. And this one man who, you know, had hired me originally to work on City Course Center, he saw this. And he once told me I was the best leader he ever had. And he just moved me, moved me, moved me. And I call him my mentor, but I also call him my tormentor because he was constantly making sexual remarks. Constantly. Uh-huh. But you know what? The guy was, I mean, he was a clown. Everybody thought he was a it was brilliant man, but I mean, in construction, but the women in his office, the main office, you know, they just, they didn't think twice about it. It was like I said, he was a clown and did it bother me. Yes, it did. In front of other people, if he said anything to me, I would go right back at him, which you can't always do. And I want to get to talking about, you know, what women should be doing and, and stuff, but yeah, I mean, yeah, we're talking yeah. all this time about me. But anyway, at that job, I met the Trumps. And they were going to do a building in New York City, Trump Tower, a very big mixed-use building. And they asked me if I would run the job for them, be in charge of the whole thing. I said, you know, I went home and I said to my husband, how did this happen? How could I possibly do that? Who am I going to go? Where? He said, don't worry. People will come to you. And I did it. And I did a very good job there. I was very happy there. And I worked closely with Mrs. Trump. I'm sorry, he's now deceased. And they would start with me, again, with the sexual harassment and include her and some things. And they write things on the walls. And But I was a VP then, you know? I was a big shot. I could have had anyone fired. But no, this is what I did. They were putting, there was this one guy doing drawings on the walls and the stairwells, you know, with like a, a marker and making like little slogans. This is Barbara, you know, legs spread out, a person, you know, stick person. And I said, okay, I'm not going to try to stop this guy. I'm not going to give him any credibility. I don't want to know his name. I went to my labor foreman. And I said, okay, get me one of your best laborers. Buy him a can of white paint. And here's what he's going to do. Every morning, he's going to walk the stairwells. Every day at lunchtime, he's going to walk the stairwells. And every evening before he goes home, and he's going to 
paint over anything about me or Ivana that was drawn on. And we did that. And you know what? It stopped. I made the man totally irrelevant. It didn't matter. But I could do that. I had power. Most women in this business do not have power. And, you know, I want to talk about, you know, how to assert yourself and how to do things like that and, and learn and deal with and cope with, you know, so. Yeah, let's talk about that. So looking back at your career, is there like, what would you say is the biggest lesson that you would bring to women of today in the field? The biggest what? Lesson, the biggest lesson or a piece of advice. This sounds trite, but I'm going to say it. It's you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe in yourself. And, you know, people have been saying for like the past five years, maybe even longer, that 10% of the people in construction are women. Mm No, no. 10% of people that work in connection with construction are women. Maybe insurance people, secretaries, safety people. And I respect all of them, but they don't work in construction. There are four types of people that work in construction, architects and engineers, project managers, and people in the trades. Okay. Those are the four. And the highest percentage we have right now is architects and engineers. Since I'm an engineer, I'm more familiar with this than anyone. About 20% of graduate engineers are women. That figure has been the same for over 20 years. And, you know, we could talk about why that is, but let's go on to project managers are, I think, 10% and women in the field. 3%, maybe 4%. And that has not changed since the 70s. President Carter issued a directive that 6.8% of the women working on, uh, people, men working on federal jobs doing construction trades had to be women. It never happened. But okay, so now we're setting the stage here. There are very few women in construction. So one of the things, I teach them ways to cope. I try to teach them when to talk and when to be quiet when to call the police. But I also say, okay, now this is how you get through. you got to find a mentor, a woman. It's got to be a woman. Okay. And there aren't many. And anytime something happens, have someone to talk to. See if there are other women on the job to talk to. If you don't have them, talk to the women in your life, your mother, if you have a pastor, you know, or a psychiatrist even, you know, just get it out. Don't hold anything inside. And if you are of age and you've done things in the business and, and you've accomplished, then you got to be a mentor for other women. Because women, I'll never forget the, the march on Washington the day after the 2017 inauguration. Yeah. I went there. Oh my God. I walked away and, you know, I had dinner with a man that I knew from college that night who lived down there. And he said, well, what did you learn today? And I said, I learned that the only way anything is going to happen is it's going to be the women. And it was. Two years later, you saw the midterms, then you saw the women and what they did. And that's, we have to help ourselves. I love men. I have a son and they're great and they can be very helpful and you can learn from them and everything else. But women are going to help other women. And so you got to seek out women and you got to be a mentor when you can. So male mentors you don't recommend? I do, I do. Don't get me wrong. But I just, you know, you need a mentor. Everyone, my mentor was male. My mentor and tormentor was male. But, you know, men are not women. I mean, you know, they don't understand and they don't know what's going on. And even the most helpful ones only sometimes make it worse. For me, the guys that wanted to protect me, the paternalistic guy, they didn't help me, you know, and they wanted to. So if you can find a woman in the business, absolutely, even if it's, and even if you just got someone on your job that's another
another woman, bond with that person. I think that's very important for women. There's an organization, National Association of Women in Construction, which we do a lot of work with them. NAWIC, yes. They're having a big national conference coming up in Minnesota. And I'll I'll be there. Well, tell them they should bring me in as a speaker. I will. I'm 100%. That's what I was going to say. I I think we need you. (laughs) I think we need you there. So, you know, you mentioned something about, you know, when to talk and when to be quiet. Is that still something that you think stands like there's a time to speak out and a time not to? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, things have changed, but they say that la plus change, la plus la même show. More changes, the more it's the same. Men harass women, especially on construction jobs, and they do it now. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people in denial, women rising tops are BS, okay? So I think the first time a woman is is harassed, the first thing she should do is tell the man that she doesn't like it because time will come when he'll say she was enjoying it, we were bantering, no, go on record that you don't like it. Then tell somebody, even make a record of it. And if it keeps going on, you have to report it. And the people that you report it to are the HR people in your company and hope for the best. If you are touched, if you're assaulted, especially, you got to go to the police. You got to go to the police. But before you get yourself all worked up and all upset, you need to put things into perspective and say, what is right for me? What is this? You know, how much does this mean to me? Is this guy, can I overcome this? Can I overlook it? Can I get past it? And a lot of times that's what you have to do. And that's what I did so many times. And it's unfair. Men should not get away with it. But it's also unfair that a woman that wants to get anywhere in construction has to be the best, just to be great, just to work cheap in in my field, you know, management, just to work harder. I mean, that's the way things are for women now. We can't be mediocre like men can be. You know, we have to be. And every time I talk to a contractor, I ask them, do you have any women? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have women. And what do you think? Oh, they're the best people on the crew. And it's always true because in order to have the confidence to go out there, you have to know that you can do what you're doing, you know? So yeah, pick your spots that that pictures talk to other people and have backup. If you're going to report and don't go out and videotape anything, unless you really think you have to, because that backfires, that makes it look like you're setting someone up and you, you don't want to do that. Do you want to tell us all about your book and where it can be found? Yeah, let me just say it's a political book, okay? I okay. Work with, That's okay. I work, with, I work with the ex-president or former TFG, as they call him, for a long time. And I got to know him and his wife, the late Ivana, very well. We were very close. And from 1980, when I was working on the Hyatt Hotel, until about 98, when I stopped working as a consultant, I watched him. And I observed him and the changes. And, you know, I am probably the only person that has this kind of experience that can say, you know, what he was and what he became and watched it closely because, you know, other books are written about what he was like, you know, much later. And then, you know, of course, Mary Trump talks about his childhood and a lot of biographers do that. But I was really there. So I I wrote this book. Now, a lot of the book has my own experiences, you know, like trips to Italy with Mrs. Trump. And, you know, all sorts of really nice anecdotal things. But basically, it's, you know, it's called Tower of Lies, what my 18 years of working with Donald Trump reveals about him. Tower of Lies. 
And it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Yeah. All Hazard Girls need to read it based on just to learn about your experiences, you know, in construction and working under the Trump organization. And one thing I just want to touch on real quickly before we have to time out here. I know that Donald Trump really like rated you as like his woman in construction. Like he was supporting women. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about that? How you felt about that? You know, when I was not working, which there was a period of time that I didn't have a job, I, I wrote to him and, I, you know, people were calling me sexist and all this stuff. And I never talked to him after that, by the way, when he became, you know, Mr. Big Shot, had no time for me. But I said to his secretary, I guess, Rhonda Graff, you know, he should say, you know, I put this woman in charge of Trump Tower, you know. And, I, you know, nothing came of that. But when he was running, he decided that, you know, that'd be a great thing for him. So we went out there and he said, you know, how great he was. And, you know, he broke the glass ceiling. It was a crap. But, you know, he hired me. He didn't hire me because I was a woman, although I think he liked the idea that he was breaking barriers. There. He hired me because I was the best person. And also I worked cheaper than a man. I mean, you know, that's why. So how did I take it? I didn't, you know, my reaction was, oh, okay. You know, I had had another book, which I self-published. And I thought, well, maybe this will help me sell that book. I mean, I was pretty good about it. But then after a while, it got out of hand. And you can Google me on and see what I had to say. There's something (laughs) I must say. There was one thing that I must say. And then we can close. I was speaking at North. Western University in Chicago at a special group of Kellogg uh, School Business graduate students. And we talked about all the different things, you know, about my experiences and business in general. And I took questions. And one of the questions, this is the last question, actually, I asked um, someone said to me, what do you consider your greatest accomplishment? And, you know, it's funny because it was a knee jerk. I didn't even stop for a minute. I just said my children. And that is my greatest accomplishment. I had them late in life. I was lucky enough to have twins. And they are the most important thing in my life to me. And I'm so happy that I had them. You know, in my business, it was, you know, people looked at me. I mean, (laughs) I even tried to get a loan once a long time ago. And they weren't giving loans to women that were of uh, childbirth age. And it was fine for people not to hire you if you were childbearing age, you know. People looked at me and they just, well, she'll have a, she's married, so she'll have a kid and that'll be the end of her. I almost thought that I couldn't have children at that point. I mean, it was confusing and hard. And I'm just so happy and gratified that I did. And I will tell you that when I did announce to the world that I was having children, that was the scuttlebutt. Oh, that's it for her. She's leaving. Interesting. I was a vice president. I had worked many years. I built Trump Town. I was working for a company and building a uh, headquarters building on Madison Avenue. And that was the response. Oh, she's done. So anyway, I just having children is a great thing. And you don't have to. I mean, you know, maybe not for everyone. It has to be your choice that you can't let people influence you into thinking that you can't do your job and have a child if that's what you think you can do. But you were able to continue. Oh, of course. I went right back to, I I actually worked the day I gave birth and I was back two weeks later. You worked the day that you gave birth. So, I mean, do you think that we have unrealistic expectations for mothers nowadays? About women and child raising? 
Yeah, like about, do you think we have unrealistic expectations in this industry, you know, in the construction oh, industry? For women? For, for women, for mothers, yeah. For people who, women yeah. who are having babies. Well, yeah, you know, it's so much better than it ever was. And that's wonderful. But, you know, and my daughter taught me a lot of this from a young person's perspective. You know, I used to walk around saying, well, nobody gave me anything. I had my kids that went back to work two weeks later, blah, blah, blah. But in her point was, no, 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 you have to support children and their parents, mothers and fathers, primarily mothers, when they give birth. And, you know, I thought about it for a while. I said, of course, absolutely. I mean, what's the future of the country but the children? And if you're not encouraging people to have children, and if you're not supporting them when they do have children, so they continue in their pursuits, whether they're educational or in business or anything else, then you're not, you're doing the community a disservice. So we do have to help women more. Yeah, I agree with that. And the industry, you're doing the whole industry a disservice because the industry really benefits and needs women. Yeah, all industries do. And if women quit because they want to take care of their kid for a while and they can't do it with, you know, their company won't hold their job soon. I mean, it's just absurd. It's absurd. Now, in my case, I mean, you know, I couldn't not go back to work. I mean, you know, and not that I say I'm, you know, irreplaceable, but almost in a way I was doing a unique, very unique job and they couldn't just put someone else on it. It would, you know, it just wasn't. And I knew that, but, you know, I went back and, you know, if it were nowadays, I probably could have Zoomed a lot of meetings and maybe been on in the office two or three days a week instead of five. But my company was wonderful about it. They were wonderful about it. And so I was lucky. But we do have to support women and men, but especially women and the, the you know, when they need to be with their children when they're first born and you know, not for five years, but I mean, you know what I'm saying. Did this happen? Did your pregnancy occur during your time at the Trump organization? No, no, okay. no. I was, I was with another company. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it. So, all right. Now, speaking of, you know, the idea of supporting women through early child years and, and pregnancy and everything and childbirth, is this one of the main points you think we need to be addressing in order to not only acquire more women into the industry, but to keep them there? Or are there other things as well? What are your thoughts on that? Well, for one thing, in order to keep them, this is very important because not the main reason, but a reason why women leave engineering is because they don't have that kind of support for their future children or their pregnancies or whatever. And, you know, demands that are placed on them are unfair. Happens in law too, and probably medicine as well. So they leave, but they leave for other reasons. And one of the major reasons is because they don't get the opportunities that men get. They just don't. And there is still a lot of sexual harassment and there's discrimination and they can't hack it, to be honest with you. And that's really unfair, but, and it's got to change. And, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, companies talk about reaching out and they do outreach and that's, you know, they really don't. First of all, they have these diversity programs, right? And most companies, I'm not even talking about construction in general, especially construction. Yeah, all the people on the diversity committees are men. I mean, you know, it's oh, just well, hopefully they, that's changing a little bit. My goodness. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, no, no, really. I mean, you know, it's well, when you talk about, you know, getting the higher up and no, many industries, it's 50-50 and it's great. But, you know, when you go to the higher ups and you look at the so-called C-suite, something I don't oh, like yeah. that term, it is primarily men. And how do they relate? They don't relate. It's just, you know, 
you need women in there that understand what the women have gone through and are going through and how to help keep them, retain them. And, you know, when you talk about professionals like engineers and architects and stuff, you got to make them partners. I mean, it's got to be more women partners. As far as construction is concerned, you got to go out to the schools, you got to go into the community. You know, besides dealing with sexual harassment, intimidation, and discrimination, I call them big three, women that choose to go into a field, like say carpentry or, you know, electrician, weld or whatever, they encounter a lot of opposition from within their own community or surroundings. A lot of people in our world believe that this is not women's work, that construction work is not for women. And so we have to sort of like change that attitude. And it's it's a society has to step up to the plate. We have to start recognizing. And I see this a little bit on television. I like it. More women in roles that are, you know, working roles, of trades roles, that kind of thing. So that people can get used to seeing it, you know. And, you know, dealing with you know, your opposition, that's where the mentoring comes in and all that and understanding, you know, you make a choice not to ever believe that you can't do what you want to do this. You know, there's no construction trade that a woman can't do. Okay. Some require maybe particularly stronger people, but nowadays uh, work rules and mechanics have, have made it not necessary to be so, you know, brute force. But most of the jobs it could very easily be done on women. It should be done. It shouldn't be 3%. It should be 50%. 50 But, you know, even let's shoot for 10 at this point in time, but nobody's doing anything except yapping, yapping away. Oh, how great we are. We encourage diversity and all of this. So what what should they be doing? What should the companies be doing to get women in and to stay? Well, you know, they should impose on themselves. I believe in affirmative action. I worked in construction when there were no minorities. And, you know, a couple of years, you had to just, you know, force it on the companies. You have to have this many minorities, whatever. And then the year after a while, it was not a problem. They were all, you know, minority people were working now and then their children were working. And, you know, it was all so it lasted for a short period of time. I do believe that they should mandate certain percentage of women and some companies do. And the interesting thing about that is the few women who are working in the field often can go from company to company and name their own price because there are so few women doing it and companies are demanding that, that you have so many women, but that would be a good thing to just say, okay, we're going to have this many women. And then all of a sudden it'll work. It'll fall into place. You know, there are groups like, I think it's NEW, non-traditional employment for women or something like that, that train women and they work with companies and they work with unions. And some of the unions have been wonderful. Like the Tin Knockers Union has set priorities and standards and whatever you want to call it. And they're meeting it. But a lot of these women don't get jobs after they get their training. Why is that? To me, if you've got every woman that gets trained in new or or through a company or even through a school program, every single woman should get a job. I mean, you know, it's just since we have so few, they have to be more proactive. They have to go out into the schools. They have to advertise when there are women in the field. They've got to reach out to them. There's got to be someone that they can talk to, not some, you know, just this head of HR or something. You've got to be a person, you know, that deals with diversity, but I'm thinking, you know, gender diversity primarily. Yeah. But so that if something goes wrong and they have to be encouraged to report, you know, a lot of people don't report because they're afraid of, you know, being uh, blackballed or whatever. And, uh, and yeah. Mm-hmm. 
that happens retribution. And, you know, even though it's against the law, it happens. And so you need someone in the company that's going to, and some of these are very small companies, but so what? So what? So you're a small company, you have a hundred workers, you're, you know, you're a carpenter or something. You can do it. I mean, it's just, you have to want to do it. And that's the problem. People want to talk about things, but when it comes to, you know, hitting the road, they're not so good at that. Barbara, your book, Tower of Lies, is all about your time working with the Trump organization as an executive vice president of the organization. Can you tell us, I know you, you told us a little bit about how you got involved with the organization, but, and how you sort of got the position, but can you talk to us a little bit about what your experience was like working with Donald Trump himself? Yes. You know, it's funny. I said this to somebody once and it got published. I said, you know, he was the least sexist boss I had when it came to treating me any different from the men. And that is true. It was true then. It's true this day. I got absolutely no deference, none whatsoever. I don't think Trump even thought I was a woman. So, you know, of course, in hiring me, he treated me differently, paid me less. <laughs> but in terms of, you know, uh, cursing around me or and, and, and I sort of like that, you know, that, you know, anyone could be themselves because that was a big problem for me in the beginning, too. You know, oh, we can't be ourselves around a woman. But no, he was for all the women. He ogled all the women. He, you know, he only wanted beautiful women working in his office. And, you know, I'm, you know, the stories about his uh, affairs and stuff. But as far as treating me was concerned, I was just one of the many boys. And, you know, for some reason, he was very respectful to me because on the Hyatt, he had his own people on board. And he just shamed them in front of everybody, put them down and stuff. And I thought, I'm not going to be able to take that. But it didn't happen. And maybe part of the reason was when I first started, he needed an engineer to sign off on something having to do with one of the buildings we were demolishing. And he knew I was a, a licensed engineer. And he asked me if I could sign off. And I said, I never saw this building down. How could I possibly? I don't know whether it's functionally obsolete, which is what the engineer had to say. I can't do it. And I think maybe the fact that I stood up to him then might have just made an impression with him, you know. But he was very respectful of me up until a certain point, And then that's when I left. Oh, okay. Do you want to talk about that? Just, you know, we were doing a project with partners in California and it was a mess. It became a condemnation. The school district wanted to take the whole property. It was the the old ambassador hotel and put a school there. And so long story short, we did everything we could, but because the real estate market changed while all this was happening, we were indebted to them for a lot of money and the property wasn't worth what we were indebted for. So unlike like other states, like New York, they just changed their mind. They said, okay, we don't want it. you got to pay us back. And we couldn't do that. So, but in the process of doing that, I was in charge of everything. We had a partner who was a blowhard and they were desperate. They were going out of business. And the only way that they could stay in business was to sell the property for the higher price to the school district. And so He told Donald the school district didn't want to deal with me anymore, which is crap. And Donald asked me and my assistant, you know, what should I do? And I said, don't let this jerk, this Irish jerk who knows nothing about anything, in my opinion, take over for me. That's ridiculous. And he didn't listen to me. He let the guy take over. And that was not what made me quit. I mean, you know, but the guy 
ended up really screwing up. He let them know that he was desperate and they walked away. So after that, we were trying to figure out what we could do. How would we keep this property? Do we go into bankruptcy or whatever? We had a massive meeting with all their partners. There were four or five of them. And, you know, some people, real estate agent, lawyers, stuff like that. And Donald blamed everything on me. And I was very disrespectful to him. I said, you know, he was yelling and screaming. I said, you know, Donald, there are drugs that you can take for that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was a terrible thing to say. Even now, I realize that was a terrible thing. But after the meeting was over, you know, I said goodbye to the people that had traveled in. And then I went up to his office and quit. And your book, your book, Tower of Lies, is it just all about your experiences and all this story that you just told me now? and. <laughs> Or is it, a, is it, what else do you touch on in the book? Well, you know, the book was written in 2020, or actually, well, 2020, I wrote it in 2020. And, you know, there was a lot going on there. And so what I did was I opined on certain things that he was doing and sort of tied them back to things that I had seen him do and how the evolution of, you know, him getting rich and being famous and all that steered him in a certain direction. My classic example is, you know, he used to serve the best people. Well, guess what he did? He did when I was working there at Trump Tower. And I left to do another job and I came back. And when I came back, I saw that he he no longer was hiring the best people. He was hiring people that would do what he said. And he wasn't listening to people anymore. When he wanted to do ridiculous things, I would tell him that's ridiculous to someone else. He might get mad, he may, but whatever. But he ended up following all of us. That was gone when I went back. It's just, you know, I mean, he did listen to me and everything else, but I could see the change. I could see he didn't want to be told no. And that just got worse and worse and worse. The Barbara Rez, executive vice president of the Trump Organization and author of the book Tower of Lies, over 40 years experience in the construction industry. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Hazard Girls podcast. It's been such an honor to speak to you and learn more about your history and your experiences. And to listen to some of your advice for women, I know we have lots of hazard girls that are going to be very anxious to hear your advice and your stories. Absolutely. I'm delighted to do it. I believe in women and they have to believe in themselves. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.